You're listening to Opera Innovations, a podcast brought to you by ABA Technologies. This month on Thought Leaders, we are speaking with Dr. Messia Serencioni Lezzi, and we're learning much more about her story, where she came from, and how she got to where she is today. So without further ado, Dr. Messia Serencioni Lezzi. All right, so today I'm very, very excited um, because this is an individual I've been wanting, and my students actually have been wanting to hear their story for a while now. And so today we are talking with Dr. Nasia Serencioni-Lezzi. So welcome, and thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh my goodness. Thank you, Shauna Costello. I appreciate you and I greatly appreciate the honor of being to sit with you and opportunity to share my story with you and listeners. And um, Nasia can probably attest to this, but I've been bugging been bugging you for a while now I'm like Nazia come on <laughs> um, <laughs> so yes thank you and um I'll jump right in I'll ask the first question you know who are you and how oh, did you goodness. get to where you are today I feel oh, like you blew up in the field and yeah. I'm so intrigued I know a little I know little bits but mm-hmm. I'm very mm-hmm. intrigued to hear your story Oh my goodness. Well, I want to share it. I want to share it. Um, And my hope is in my sharing people, many humans will see themselves. So you shared with me, Shauna, that people start um, this segment after being asked this question, they start at different places. So I'm going to start from my beginning my very, very beginning, um, because I think it'll give listeners a lot of context and more understanding of how I got to be here in 2023. So for people who have heard me um, at other times, I I, I share that my family is from the deep south right? There's the South and then there is the Deep South. So my family hails from Mother's Side, Hollandale, Mississippi, and Father's Side, Suggsville, Alabama, okay? And I'm not giving the major metro cities around those areas because those towns are steeped in tradition and culture And there is real lived experience and context behind those little small, deep South Southern towns. So my parents, uh, when they grew up, it was uh, the deep rural, rural South. That's another uh, contextual variable. Um, And Jim Crow South, right? For those of you who don't know what Jim Crow is, that was the segregated South, where things were divided racially into white and black. So I grew up under the rearing of people who lived through that experience. And 
And in the early 19, or excuse me, in the late 60s, early 70s, my family, my parents were a part of what we call the great migration to the North. And that's when uh, black people left the South, the Jim Crow South, to come up North, primarily for jobs and opportunity. They came to places like uh, Detroit, right? Uh, Chicago, um, Pittsburgh, you know, places that had plenty of jobs. So my family came, certainly my family uh, from the South is dispersed in all those areas. Um, but my my grandparents and parents uh, drove that route to come and landed in um, in Illinois and took advantage of the, the plentiful jobs. Much of my family coming from the South got jobs at Caterpillar Tractor Company. And that's where my father worked for um, 46 years. And so he retired. <clears throat> so anyway, with that said, you know, their reason for coming again was more opportunity. Um, and it was a, a certainly a, what I would tact as a struggle, right? To come from the deep rural South into a, a totally different culture. You know, a lot of people, and I've shared this story with others, a lot of people would tact what my parents and grandparents did and, and came here, the conditions they came under as kind of refugee conditions because they were fleeing this political climate in the South really for their safety. However, um, because they weren't fleeing to another country, they wouldn't have the status of refugees. But I promise you, um, if you look at the experiences of refugees and what my grandparents and parents experienced when they made that trek to from the south to the north, it is almost, you know, has a lot of, of similarity to the experience of those who are fleeing um countries where there is political persecution. So I was a product of, I call very brave and courageous people who decided they wanted more for themselves and more for, you know, my, me and my siblings. So I was reared in Illinois um, and I lived in a town or I grew up in a town, uh, about uh, 25 miles southwest of Chicago called Joliet. I grew up in the east side of Joliet, Illinois. Um, and I want to share a little bit about the neighborhood that I grew up in. Um, colloquially, some might call it the hood, right? It was uh, primarily, not primarily, it was an all black community, all black community, high poverty, um, at that time, very high crime. Um, and that's that's where, that was my neighborhood. That is where I grew up. Um, I went as a young child to a local public school. And because of so many things that happened to me growing up in this community as a child, um, I showed up in the school with a lot of learning differences, a lot of um, 
deficits in my education. I don't think I mentioned my parents had me when they were very, very young. Um, they were teenagers. And as a result, most of my rearing came by way of my grandparents. Um, my very tired grandparents whose priority always wasn't helping me with homework and helping me stay organized. So again, I showed up in the school system with a lot of learning differences and just my way of being was different than other children. And there was someone or my mother at some point was sharing my learning differences with, a, with someone who was in her life and this person said, you know, have you considered maybe, maybe she needs a smaller environment. Maybe she needs an environment that's more, a little bit more supportive. And this person opened up the door um, for myself and my younger sister, who was 18 months younger than me, to have my mother try to get us into a private school that was way across town in a whole nother community. So at the age of, I believe I was seven years old, me and my little sister, for the next eight years, we took two public, public uh, buses, two city buses to travel from the hood in Joliet to a very affluent community on the other side of town to attend this private school that my mother's colleague friend set the occasion for us to go to. I will tell you, I start there in my story because I don't think, um, Anybody could have known how powerfully that experience would shape the rest of my life. The lessons that I got at that school, St. Jude, Joliet, Illinois, are the lessons that I carry with me today. So I want to share a little bit about that. I remember the first day that I went, I walked into the school. It was a Catholic school and it was so different than the public school that I went to. I walked into the school and there was a nun, you know, I didn't even know what I did. I didn't have a the language to know what a nun was back then, but I walked into the school and a lady wearing what I know now is a habit, this all black, you know, with this a head covering, she met us with, with at the door and she took me and my sister with our mother into an office. And in that office, they gave us our Catholic school uniforms. I remember it. It was a white button down shirt with a plaid blue skirt and a little plaid blue vest to go over my white button down shirt. They put our uniforms on us and we proceeded to say goodbye to our mother. And there was a teacher, a, a gray-haired teacher, Miss Bennett, who took me to my second grade classroom. And another teacher 
Miss Ebbage, who took my little sister to her first grade classroom. So if, at that point, you know, me and my sister, we had never been, we're, we're 18 months apart. So we had never really been separated before. So we said our goodbyes and went to the classroom. And I remember walking in that room and I looked, I was the only black girl in that class. And I had never been out of my community. So I wasn't aware of difference. And when I walked into that classroom, what I realized for the first time in my seven-year-old life is that I was different. And it was salient for me because I remain the only little black girl in that class for the eight years I was there. Only little black girl. And the only little girl who was poor and the only little girl who came from uh, who came from a single parent family and was being reared by grandparents. So there was a lot of difference there. And what I have the language to share now is that I developed a relationship with difference in the four walls of that school. The relationship that I developed was because different in the context of an environment where you're the only little black girl, difference meant I, did, I wouldn't have friends, right? Difference meant nobody wanted to play with me. Difference meant I stood out. Difference meant that I wouldn't come in contact with the reinforcers that are so powerfully important to a little girl. So I started to learn to assimilate, to adapt, to code switch so I could fit in. You know, again, who were my language models? My language models primarily were people from the deep rural South who didn't have any formal education, none. My grandfather made it to the third grade. My grandmother, I believe, made it to the eighth grade. So I spoke, you know, very differently than my peers in this Catholic school. And over the years, what I learned how to do through a, a series of successive approximations through, you know, punishment and reinforcement, I learned to speak the English of my peers, standard American English. And what I learned was, if I learned that well, I'd come into contact with reinforcers, right? I wasn't so different, right? And as I moved through the walls of that school, again, now I have the language to share it. What else did I find? Wow, we hit, you know, fifth, sixth grade. Fifth, sixth grade, and that's when we start getting interested in how we look. Right. We start getting interested in who's looking at us. And I realized, you know, my hair wasn't long and flowy like the white girl's hair. What did I have my little pigtails in? That just didn't look as pretty. So what did I do? I started straightening my hair. Right. Because I learned 
that I wouldn't come in contact with those reinforcers that are so powerful in adolescence. If I looked, you know, if I wore my natural hair, the hair that the, the people in my community wear. So I started straightening my hair. Then, you know, I am an athlete, right? I'm strong. I noticed that my body was shaped differently. And at that time, those years, I don't know if you remember guest jeans. Well, let me tell you, guest jeans didn't work real good for my developing athletic body, right? So I developed a lot of issues around my body, right? I don't think they ever fit me either. <laughs> I'm perfectly honest. Oh, yeah, yes. So I, in those years, I ended up graduating from eighth grade as the president of my class. My sister ended up the president of the school. And I look back and I'm looking at that process the acculturation that I went through, you know, I was able to become president, I think largely because of my ability to adapt and assimilate. So as a teenager, I took that lesson and I kept it for many, many years all through high school. So let's go back and reflect on what those lessons were. I was going to say, I was like, when you started saying you're going to a private school, I'm like, I think this yeah. just tells about my learning history. I'm like, oh no. I was like, which way is this going to, I was like, what is this going <laughs> to and I, and I definitely think going back to this, I, I don't, I don't want to have make private school wrong. And I don't want to make Catholic private school wrong. This is what I'm going to say. If you are a parent, and particularly if you have a, a, a parent of a child who is different, like I was, I say, be a powerful advocate. I think what happened with my sister and I, we were in this school with a lot, the parents there had a lot of power, right? They had an extreme amount of power. We were different. And my parents and my grandparents didn't even know how to advocate. And there was no one there to look at that power dynamic to make advocacy even accessible. So for many, the years that we were there, me and my sister were alone, right? Yeah. So these- and, and the environments that your parents and your grandparents came from? Yes. My in-laws are from Alabama. Okay. And you have some context, yes. So, and, and from very rural Kentucky- as well yeah. and I don't know how they ended up how they ended up which is I'm very thankful for but they you know your parents and your grandparents also were never in positions you don't speak up no you don't know no. no and the sentiment while me and my sister were at the school was be grateful be grateful Keep your nose in your book. Do don't stand out. Just be grateful. 
So those are lessons that I learned, powerful lessons. So I took those into my teen and early adult years, you know, what was the lesson? You gotta look a certain way, right? That started, your hair has to be a certain way. You have to put that, you know, that professional face on, right? Today, I know that is a very, very damaging way of being in the world. What were the lessons? Don't speak up, you know, switch. You have to speak a certain way, look a certain way. And I stayed in that mindset because it was normal for me. And it's it's normal for many of us, but I stayed there for a good majority of my adult life, right? And the thing is, when you live life like that, right, you live it following these very kind of few from from the framework of these very fused thoughts and ideas, Shauna, it is exhausting. It's exhausting. So I found myself, you know, really to, to the point where, you know, I, I knew I needed something different. I didn't know what that was, you know, um, after high school, I, uh, went on to the University of Iowa. And from there, I stayed there for two years. And then I moved on to the University of Illinois, where I pursued a degree in political science, right? Hoping, my hope back then was I wanted to attend law school and really change the world, right? I, because of my own upbringing, I, you know, I really wanted to become a child advocacy attorney, and I went uh, to into a master's program for education right after my bachelor's degree in preparation for going to law school to become a child advocacy attorney. So I ended up getting my special ed degree, uh, master's in special ed from the University of Illinois. And I started working with children with special needs and I loved it. You know, what I found was, what I found in that experience was my own voice, right? Because I started seeing myself in these children and I'm like, oh my goodness. And where I didn't receive that advocacy, I found that because I was so empathic and sensitive, I became a strong and powerful advocate for them. So the desire to go to law school diminished. I'm like, I, I will be just fine as a special education teacher. Right. So one year um, I had by this point been teaching uh, for a few years in Chicago public schools. And one year there was an opening for a teacher of young learners with autism. And I, I didn't, I didn't know what this thing called autism was, right? Like, what is, what is this? What's autism? And this is going back 25 plus years ago, but it was in Chicago public schools. And I ended up taking this position and there was a methodology being taught at the time. It was called teach and structured teaching. Um, and the pyramid 
model of education. That was uh, Andy, Dr. Andy Bondi and Lori Frost group. So I was trained to support these amazing learners. So let me tell you about my, my first week in this school with these children with autism. I, had, I didn't know anything about the disability. I remember reading about autism when I was working on my master's. I think we, we had a paragraph. But I remember being in the classroom and I just was fascinated by these humans. Like I, and I, I still get this, I'm fascinated by their communication, right? It's not, I don't see it. People say, you know, their communication, they have communication deficits. Okay, maybe. But what I saw was it was my job to figure out how they were communicating. And once I did, there was an immediate connection. Another thing that I became fascinated by was how welcoming these little humans were of me, right? Most people know who spend time with me in my private life that I'm not vocal verbal, right? I don't do a lot of talking. And for the first time in my teaching, I was with these little humans and they got that. Not only did they get it, but I remember in my training, they said less talking is more under equals more understanding. And there was something about my way of being that resonated with these humans and something about them that resonated with me. And it was a perfect match. And for the next 12 years of my life, anything that I could get my hands on around autism, I read it. Anything that I could get training on to make me a better teacher in service of these humans and their families, I was there. And I had tremendous success. I ended up leaving my public school position and I transitioned from there into, you know, talk, talk about a story to a very affluent uh, public school district um, in Naperville. I don't know if you're familiar with Naperville. And I remember I left my babies in the city because um, I had, by this point, I had moved out to the suburbs and I went to Naperville. And I remember I walked into my classroom, my same little lovely beings, but I looked at the skills that these lovely children in Naperville had compared with the skills that my children had in Chicago. And this is what I found. It was interesting that my babies in Chicago could do more. They could, they, they had more functional skills than these children, these lovely humans that I met in Naperville. And I started looking at, you know, why? And I looked at it again in context. And I said, the children that I served in the city had to, right? They had to. So what I was faced with when I got into Naperville was uh, children who could they could tax so many things. Right. They could they could read words, but they didn't know how to make a snack for themselves. Right. They could, you know, do math problems, but they didn't know how to toilet themselves. And what I found was. 
you know, oh my goodness, you will be Nasia of tremendous value to this learner population and their families if you engage in the conversation of functional skills. Functional skills for learners are important too. And it doesn't have to be an either or. And I had tremendous success in that school district to the point where parents were fighting to get their children each year into my classes because of my attention to functional skills. And beyond that, what I've learned is, and this is primarily through my special education training, the training I got from Pyramid, is I learned how to meaningfully engage families from the beginning in conversations about the future, right? What do you want for your child, right? And I, when I have those conversations, I have always said, let's think big, no limitations here, right? But when parents tell me what it is they want for their children, as the professional, then I'm able to support, you know, this is what you want. This is what is important for you. This is what, you know, if the child is old enough, the child said is important to them, then this is what we need to do, right? To plan for that so that your child and you will have a life that's meaningful to you. Oh my, by this time, I'm feeling so amazing about my work, so amazing about what I'm seeing happening in the lives of children and families. So I took my next, next step professionally and I enrolled in a, a doc program at Loyola University of Chicago. The doc program was in leadership and instruction. And again, that took me to a whole nother level. And my plan was at the time, I'm gonna get this doctorate in curriculum and I wanna develop curriculum for special ed, special education teams to support special education learners. But life is what happens when we make plans for something else. So as it would have it, life took me in a, a different direction and I ended up shortly after being in Naperville um, and then completing my doctorate, I ended up uh, taking a position at Chicago State University and taking the next step in my career, which was preparing learners, right? So I was tenure track for eight years at Chicago State University within the special education department. Very proud of that work. I was because of, again, going back to the initial parts of my story, I came in with some rich, rich experiences. So I would do things with my learners at Chicago State, like and it was it's a primarily uh, black institution. So I remember when I was teaching on child development, you know, what I would do is like take it out of the classroom and I would go to places like uh, the DuPage uh, Children's Museum, where a lot of a lot of wealthy families go, they take their children there, and I would have my learners observe, right, observe what's happening within those parent interactions, right, and just put them up against what's happening in the interactions that they see with the the families that they work, just for observation, 
right? Just to give more context. Another thing that I would do is I would take my learners, my pre-certificated teachers into very wealthy, very wealthy uh, private schools, right? One of them that I would take them to is called Francis Parker in Chicago. It is a very affluent, wealthy school, tuition upwards of $20-something a year. But what, what my, my learners, my students were able to see is how priorities are set, right? When you go, when I went to Francis Parker, I remember I went in and my students were with me and we observed a circle time. And the teacher did not direct the learners to come to the circle, right? This is what it sounded like. Okay, everyone. You know what to do once you're finished writing your paragraphs, then you can join us at the circle. And I remember thinking the agency that's being developed at this early age, the autonomy and the sovereignty that's being developed and what that will mean for these children as they move through this type of educational system. And again, I don't impose any values or norms on my learners, but that experience gives them context. It gives them context. How do we, who are working with our children in the inner city, who don't have these resources, how will we also develop critical thinking skills, sovereignty of thought, agency, under the conditions that they have. So it's just talk about thought leadership, right? Powerful thought leadership there. And I ended up having one of my students, she ended up after that experience having her own daughter attend uh, Francis, this Francis Parker School and it changed their lives just because of what the contingencies it brought her daughter into contact with. So fast forward beyond that, I left uh, Chicago State and I started doing work with the uh, public school system. Um, I ended up in local school districts developing their autism programs. And I did that for a number of years. And what I found was many people, you know, by this time, this BCBA credential was in place. And I started getting direct reports the first thing they would ask, now I'm almost over 20 years in, I've de I'm developing programs, I have a lot of experience, but the first thing that they would ask is, oh, well, Nasia, you're my supervisor, do you have a BCBA? It became an issue. So in my 40s, having that question over and over again drove me back into the classroom. And what I did was I took the courses to get my BCBA credential. Not so much, like I valued the credential, but what I really value is being valued for what I contribute. And I knew that if I didn't have this, then the people who were coming out of these BCBA programs wouldn't truly hear me. So I went back, I got the credential, and I will tell you, I will tell you what happened is when I got their credential, people 
did start to pay attention to me, which is one of the things I want to change, right? It shouldn't take me having the BCBA for people to, to recognize that I have something powerful to say. But that's that's where we were. And I remember I got a uh, email from a colleague um, who said that they, Jonathan Tarbox had put out a call for papers for behavior analysis and practice. Um, and it was it was interesting the way he put it out. It was it really called me to it. He said, you don't have to be you don't have to have a Ph.D. You don't have to be white. You don't have to be a man. I have it somewhere. And it spoke to me. I said, well, you know what? I'm going to write something. So I got in contact with Jonathan Tarbox and he he, you know, asked me for some ideas and I I have a list I'm going to find it of some amazing ideas right and on that list of ideas one of them was um barriers to black women in leadership and ABA and he said Nasia these are all good but I will tell you this one I can't live without right I'm like oh okay so before you know it I you know put put some things in writing and went through the whole editorial process. And that was an opening, right? It was just me sharing, sharing authentically, getting to the point in my life where, you know what, Nasia, you can be you. You can be you and share and come into whatever, what come into contact with whatever con consequence there is and you will be fine. That's what that article was. It ended up running, I think it was December, 2020 as a lead article in behavior analysis and practice. But really what it did was it raised awareness, right? That there are some barriers to leadership and that as a black woman, black women are coming into contact with these barriers to leadership in our field. And one of the things that I'm most proud of, I really am, and I, I continue to do this work. I said a couple things in that article. I talked about the need for us to start populating our programs with reflection, reflective practice. And I will tell you, Shauna, it's happening, right? At the institution that I'm currently at, it's happening. And I've been able to disseminate that message over and over. And I see reflection, really slowly, but consistently taking root within our field. So we are developing a sound practice of reflective practice in the field. And I also talked about the need for demographic information to be shared, right? We are scientists and that's data that we need to pay attention to. And shortly after that, the BCBA really um, got on top of demographic data and what that, what that meant for our field. So in the last three years, Shauna, with the kind of the, the opening being writing that article, I people have kind of caught wind of me and my message and I've been able to powerfully share some of my experiences and really make a difference in my own work, in the work of those I come into contact with and in the field. And I will tell you, we are not done yet. There is still more work to be done. I continue to grow. I continue to evolve and make a difference 
in the lives of the people I'm committed to supporting, practitioners, consumers, all of us. And that is, that's my story. Well, yeah, I think I um, met you for the first time. It had to be around 2020. Mm -hmm. I think it was Mm -hmm. Um, because it was when Linda and Tyra brought you on to an episode of The Lift. Ah, okay. I think it was 2020. That time. Maybe 2020. Time has flown by. I don't know what, but yeah. I don't know what years are anymore. I don't know. 2020, (laughs) 2021. It was somewhere right in there. And I was, you know, I was just there to facilitate the recording you know I what but I'm sitting you know I I typically in those sessions I keep my camera off because I don't want to like distract anybody I just want to let Linda and Tyra and whoever they have on that day do their thing yeah if they need anything but I'm sitting there and listening I'm just like how have I never heard how have I never heard of you before (laughs) (laughs) and so from there I've just been bugging Nasia for the last few two three years now yeah but I'm very I'm very great I'm very grateful for it and I'm grateful that you continue to stay in conversation and in community with me Shana Mm -hmm. Costello I really am well and I know that I know that you're doing some pretty intriguing things right now too yeah Yeah. I don't know if you want to talk about any of those or or if you can share yeah. Any of those, but I've heard of some things that Oh, what have you heard? heard? What have you heard, Shauna? I don't know about <laughs> this program that you're helping start. Yeah. So let me let me share this. Um for the past three years now, I have been working in the space of it started off as equity, diversity, and inclusion work around that value. And it is with a colleague of mine, Scott Herbst. We served on the board of a professional organization together. And as an outcome of that service, we started, we got in community and conversation around what can we do uh, to really further people's understanding, awareness around equity, diversity, and inclusion. So we started a company. Initially, it was called Pivot to Inclusion. And we primarily work with ABA organizations, um, but we are moving out of that space into more uh, different industries. So after a couple years of doing the work, I said, you know what? We are absolutely doing work around equity, diversity, and inclusion. However, the work that we're doing is bigger. It is bigger. It is broader, right? Equity, diversity, and inclusion is part of, I believe, a larger commitment towards human dignity and transformation. And when we limited, and I felt like that as we grew, I'm like, no, we're more... We're more than EDI. What we're doing encompasses equity, diversity, and inclusion, but it's more. So we renamed ourselves. We are no longer pivot to inclusion. We call ourselves Inquiry Inc. 
Inquiry Inc. And really, it's towards our commitment to continue the questioning. You know, there's a real danger in showing up in the world knowing, right? Because when we know and we're so sure, we stop engaging in the inquiry. And that's what our work does. We train on communication. We train on reflection and really how to get people in communication so that they have, and I'll say this, the component skills needed to move more fully towards their values and take action towards their value of equity, diversity, and inclusion. So many of us value equity and inclusion, but don't have the skills in place to get us there. So my work with, with Scott Herps and our company, Inquiry Inc., has been, I'll have to say, the some of the most powerful work in my life. And then on an aside, I have another company, a company that was solo founded by me called Ulazi LLC. And I launched my first cohort of individuals um, for a webinar called Know Thyself, right? And we go through self as context, process, and content, and really through that webinar, it's a four-week webinar, gain the capacity to look at ourselves compassionately, non-judgmentally, so we can more fully connect with others in our environment and, again, ultimately live a life that's meaningful and purposeful to us. So those are, those are my two projects now, in addition to, you know, just my everyday work. And I'm still actively, you know, seeing my clients, which I don't think I'll ever give that up. You know, primarily I'm working with adults now. And honestly, I'm, I just, it's not even work anymore. More. That space in my life is joy, pure joy to connect with them and support them. Um, these are individuals that I've been with for the last 13 years. Um, I love every once a month, I make meals, right? And I have people that have them support support me in, in cooking. And we just, it's, I just love it. I love it. And then um, I'm still working as an administrator in higher education. Um, but just having having a lot of fun with these projects and don't have any plan on slowing down anytime soon, Shauna. Well, good. That's what I like. <laughs> that is what I like to hear. Um, and if people haven't listened to it yet, Nasia has very graciously started and continued a podcast series with us called evolving aba so everybody go check that out as well and expect new episodes they're they're coming we have them (laughs) don't worry um but thank you so much for sharing your story and i think it's going to resonate with so many people thank you for listening to this episode of thought leaders come back next month as we ask nasia where she thinks the field is going and or where she would like to see the field go and as always if you have questions comments feedback or suggestions please feel free to reach out to us 
at operainnovations at abatechnologies.com.